This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive. This episode is brought to you by Quarter. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. Quarter's first mission is to enable access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports as frictionless as possible, straight to your pocket. I started using Quarter and I've never looked back. You can think of Quarter as the Spotify for all investor conference calls that you can think of. You can type in the ticker of whatever company you want, say it's Etsy, and you can get a list of all of their recent earnings calls and inside the earnings calls. You can listen and click the PDF and it'll show you investor presentations or prepared remarks that you can read alongside listening. The best part is, is you can choose the speeds. You can have 1x, 1.2, 1.5, which is my favorite, and you can star companies, make them your favorites, and you'll get notifications for new conference calls and they'll be right at the top of your app. So there's five key points to remember about Quarter. First, it's 100% free. They include companies from 12 markets and plan to add more over over the coming year. They prioritize requested companies, which you can do in the app, and they have a lot more in store. So check them out on wherever app store you have. It's Q-U-A-R-T-R. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Okay. Let's see. Rui... All right, for the people that are joining, I am just forever grateful that you stuck with me through that painful experience. Mayhem. Okay. I'm just adding these people back. Um, It looks like Jessica cannot be invited for some weird reason. So, um, oh, because she's requesting to speak. There you go. Okay. And, and we're, we're back. back. Well, I can talk, so you can hey, hear can me, you right? Hear me? I, I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can, I can hear, hear you. you. There's a there's big... A yeah, there's a big feedback loop, I think, on Jessica's end, because um, I can hear myself and then, and then hear you. So, this is great. All right, I invited Rui. She is hopefully joining soon. Um, and then tweet out that link so we can retweet it and get it to all our chat rooms and stuff. Yep. Perfect. Perfect. You guys are hanging with me and I appreciate that. We can't blame you because Jack hopelessly broke Twitter, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I just shared it with everybody. Um, so if you guys, Oh, really? Awesome. Glad, glad you're here. So, Okay, uh, long story short, I unmuted I muted everybody because I thought I was being slick and tried to unmute everybody again, and I couldn't, so I uh, basically had to create an entire new one. But I appreciate everybody that stuck with me, and so Rui, I'm going to stop talking and let you kind of take the stage. First question again is, what are you seeing kind of on, on your level here with what's happening over in China with, with their market recently? Do you have any takes on that? And then 
Um, what is what is your opinion on you know maybe some of the mechanics on on, on why this is happening that U.S. investors might not realize? Yeah, sure. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, my name is pronounced Ray, but yeah. Uh, okay, that's good to um, know. I, yeah. So um. Anyway, uh. So I I want to emphasize that I'm not like a I'm not like a stock picker. I more analyze um, business strategy as well as products. And what you say at the Chinese markets actually. Uh, so I assume we're talking about ADRs here, and there's been a series of. Uh, situations that Chinese stocks have been, ADRs have been hit with. And I think, are you talking most recently about the ad tech? Uh, the, 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 so I guess I can summarize. Um, last year, there was the IPO poll, and then shortly thereafter, there was uh, antitrust against e-commerce platforms. And then there will continue to be antitrust, uh, you know, Alibaba getting fined, various other companies getting investigated. And then you have more recently the DD IPO um, sort of triggering a cybersecurity review, which will also extend to everyone else. Uh, and then you have uh, most recently the EdTech companies where this is probably like the biggest bombshell uh, of, all the role, of all the regulations that have come out. And you have um, this entire sector being asked to become nonprofit. Yeah, I think that's what I think I get. Yeah, and then there are various small um, situations here and there. I think if I if you want me to summarize the impetus behind these uh, actions by the government, I would say there are two main things going on. So probably you could uh, you, you could probably um, have all the other non ed tech scenarios be um, you know categorized under uh, sort of orderly, like more regulation on, um, on digital, on the digital economy. And it's primarily around partly uh, coming up, um, the antitrust regulations, for example, is really like, to be more on parity with other developed economies. Um, and then potentially leading in some regulations, such as we see in sort of on the data security front, you see China trying to inch a little bit further, maybe than other jurisdictions. Uh, but the ed tech stuff is really around something different, and that is um, the principle that the Chinese government has that you know education is a public good. They are trying to deal with the demographic crisis uh, that we see in China with a population rapidly aging uh, and the birth rate plummeting, and then also the fact that you know there is like growing social inequality, etc. And they want to equalize the uh, the. The play, even out the playing field, education is a great equalizer. Uh, but yeah, like those, I would say there's sort of one bunch of regulations, and then there is the ed tech that's a little bit more separate. Yeah, no, the ed tech uh, thing was fascinating, and you know that's that that's a whole entire conversation, which is exciting because we can we can we can go down so many so many different um, loops. But you mentioned the VEI structure, which is something I really want to discuss. Um, because there's one camp, and I'm going to open this up to Jessica and Mayhem and 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 buy and hold as well for for a bit of a roundtable here. There's there seems to be two camps. The first camp is, is uh, you can't. There's there there's no ownership, so buying a VEI, I mean, you really have no rights to anything. But then there's the other side where it's like, okay, you get exposure, and for some people, this is the only way that they can buy exposure to China. They can't necessarily buy stocks outright on the index. And so, you know, if one of you wants to take it, um, I know Jessica, it sounds like you've got some feedback issues, so maybe let Mayhem or or, or buy and hold go go uh, and kind of and kind of take a lead with this. But what are your thoughts on VEIs and kind of where do you stand on them as an investment product? 
Yeah, so I can go with Jessica. Doesn't so. Uh, first, I just like to to say that the spaces was an amazing idea. Uh, I thank you, Brandon, for inviting me. Uh, we're having a lot of fun and panic on the market, and you know, having all those people together. Uh, I think it's the best thing to do to get the world clearer, clearer, and uh, you know, solve some doubts that we're having. Uh, so on VEIs, I think this is probably the most talked about risk when it comes to China right now. Uh, I think it surpasses uh, the the more overall regulation arguments that we had uh, on last year or you know uh, 2019, 2018. Uh, so uh, don't get me wrong, I think that it is a big risk and you have to know about it to invest in it. Uh, I'm not the most qualified person to lecture about VEIs. Uh, so all I say about it is, I, I really don't believe that China would win anything from uh, permanently damaging international investors and destroying the market caps of its biggest companies. Uh, there's not much sense in creating permanent cash outflow, outflow from, from China and making its biggest companies nowhere near the, the US ones. Uh, it's like, it's like Ru, uh, Reima said, uh, they are not rejecting capital. It's just that the capital accumulation can be the primary driver of growth of the of the economy. Uh, so no, the Chinese government doesn't show force randomly. Their enforcement of measures almost uh, always have some logic and goal behind it. Uh, that said, I think there is a risk in the uh, VIIs, VIIs regulation. Uh, uh, it scares the market even more than it already has been scaring. Uh, especially regarding smaller companies. But uh, in my opinion, uh, and this is coming from uh, someone that is not uh, a specialist like Ray uh, in, in China, uh, we'll not get to the point where the listing will occur. My educated guess is the most extreme measure will be some uh, that incentivizes, like it's already happening right now, uh, future IPOs to list directly through uh, Hong, Kong, Hong Kong. So uh, if markets want to take it from here sure yeah and first uh thanks brandon as well for inviting me uh to participate in this i think it's an important time to be talking about these topics um I, i'll echo you know some of what buy and hold said and also just you know variable interest um these kinds of structures these variable interest entities uh this is really the only way that anyone outside of china is going to get access to these companies to be able to get exposure to the equity and the growth. Like they're already pretty hesitant to open their capital markets at all to foreign investors. I mean, you know, my understanding is investing directly in China if you're not in China or have, you know, money in China is very difficult. And so these ADRs and these VIE vehicles really are the only way we're going to get exposure to what may one day and is likely destined to become the biggest economy in the world with some of the, you know, most impressive companies in the world they're, uh, they're in. So I think it is a risk, you know, with any investment, there is the risk of losing all of your capital uh, with this type of structure. Certainly that risk is somewhat amplified as is the fact that you're, you know, you're basically navigating in waters that are certainly less free and less transparent than the U.S. market. But I think on the other side of that, you know, if you look at the sort of chasm of price appreciation between these Western uh, mega caps and, you know, some of the equivalent Chinese companies, 
I think that risk is is being priced in, if not already priced in. So on the one hand, you know, it is a risk. On the other hand, markets are constantly discounting risk. And, you know, we've seen a lot of that in Chinese shares uh, over the last couple of weeks, really since June. And they're just kind of expounding on the situation there just a little bit. You know, I think that... Um, where we are with with what's happening, I think buy and hold makes a really good point. They're not just trying to like arbitrarily destroy investor capital. There's there's methods and goals behind some of the things that are being done that involve national security, that involve perhaps uh, really taking certain elements of anti-competitive practices more seriously than perhaps we are here. And, you know, short run, that hurts. Longer run, it may, if they do it well, actually build a more competitive and innovative environment. So we really have to see where things shake out. Fear is driving prices short term. But, you know, a lot of these short term price fluctuations are not something that we can you know, make an investment decision about. Like just because something went down 5% one day, that might be an overreaction. We have to see where it shakes out over the weeks and months ahead. Got it. And Ray, that's actually a great segue to discuss how these measures um, particularly how these VEI structures and maybe China moving to a more um, incentivizing companies to list directly, how that would bode for future competitive advantages, maybe from an economical standpoint. And so I know like for you, the questions I want to try to ask are less company specific and more um, economy driven. And so with what Mayhem just said, how would that look like from a practical standpoint? Um, and 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 what would what would be the consequences of of something like that, where those incentives are now? Hey, list here on the exchange. Let's try to incentivize you know direct investment, so to speak, um, from you know Chinese into other Chinese companies, as opposed to these VEI structures or VIE structures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just want to respond and just like emphasize the VIE structure was actually created so that, yeah, foreign capital can invest in restricted Chinese businesses, right? So you could always go invest in Chinese businesses that are not restricted, but these these structures are for restricted businesses. And yeah, it's a variable interest entity that basically like is sort of like a loophole, right? You don't own the business outright. You own this like economic interest. And uh, I think so again, I focus on tech, which which is, I guess, all of the AD, most of the ADRs that are listed. And um, one thing that people don't realize, and I see people like very, very well-known VCs in the U.S. get this wrong, is that there isn't enough capital in China to support these businesses. So I was a venture capitalist, and I can tell you that even today, I can give you some stats, right? Most of the money that's going into venture capital in China is coming from foreign institutions, not necessarily the United States, but it's in the form of U.S. dollars. And that's just because there is, uh, there's only been like, you know, 10, 15 years of uh, of like the habit of investing in risky technology businesses in China. And you just don't have that large base of patient capital. Venture capital is typically a 10 plus two year cycle. You have 10 years and then you do two years extension. In China, even the best funds are getting eight, right? But most other funds are getting like five years terms. You just can't invest in company and good companies that way. And also the fact that the exit mechanisms onshore, so the domestic exchanges, it's very hard to get listed actually inside of China because they have different rules for the exchanges. And it's actually significantly easier to get listed uh, in the US. That was actually hmm. one of the, yeah, that was actually one of the reasons DD listed in the US versus Hong Kong, which is what they were considering first, because a lot of their rides um, 
you know, you can look this up. A lot of their rides didn't um, have, weren't fully licensed. So if they didn't fulfill the, you know, they didn't like check all the boxes of regulators. And so they would just get fined. Right. But for the Hong Kong exchange, they said, well, until you've, uh, until you comply, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to let you count this revenue. But in the U S it's like, you could, I guess you could just say that like, oh, by the way, our, our, uh, some of our revenues are not compliant, you know, and, and by the way, you have to pay some fines. So the the standards are actually lower. Uh, you can talk to many companies who will tell you that they try to get listed in the in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange and co- were not successful, and therefore they come to the U.S., right? It's just a different system. So not only is the capital not there um, domestically, the exchanges are not there. Now you have Hong Kong as a potential exit, um, but there's no like there's not enough it's not like china is drowning in rmb to invest in its technology companies um you know which are restricted industries internet companies etc and you know they could just say like f you to all the foreign capital that's not the case they actually currently depend on foreign capital a great example is by y capital which is one of the most well-known very well uh respected you know like tier one VC funds in China, they just announced they raised $2 billion. Well, out of that $1.7 billion was in USD, only like less, only about 200 million was in RMB. Like a fund like them with that kind of track record cannot, they were one, they were the earliest investor in Kuesho, for example, they cannot raise a lot of money onshore. So you can imagine for the rest of the people, it's very difficult. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And one of the things that struck me when is is when you mentioned that it's actually harder for Chinese companies to list on the local exchange. And the first question I have from that is what it what are what are some of the ways that it's harder? Is it accounting specific? Like, I mean, just 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 from my um, maybe my 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 naive and biased perspective, I was you know under the assumption that a lot of the Chinese accounting metrics are a little bit um, suspect. And so it would be interesting to hear that kind of thesis refuted where it might actually be harder to register and to file on these exchanges because maybe of some like stricter accounting that they then choose to go to other um, listings. But, you know, is that is, is that true or not? And if so, why? Uh, can I go before Ray really quick? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to say that uh, as a lawyer in uh, public equities, I have some experience with uh, listing in different co- countries and uh, the U.S., uh, listing uh, process is more of a uh, box check, if you know, uh, if you mean, uh, if you uh, check all, all the boxes that you need to, to list and offer your your ownership uh, to the public, then it will probably be way easier uh, for you to go without any, you know, SEC uh, 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 investigation th- through your accounting or, you know, you just... Uh, File all the documents, and if the documents uh, check all the boxes, then you 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 kind of go in a overall uh, list of companies that can list, if you uh, if you will. In China, or I think in Japan, it's it's like that too. I, I may be mistaken on that. Uh, the case is kind of one by one. You know, you have to check all the boxes, and besides that, you have to pass through uh, an analysis to know if your company is really suitable to uh, list. So uh, those are some of the difficulties that I, I understand that you might have uh, listing on through Hong Kong or the US. So now we can go, sorry for the direction. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I was just going to add that. I, we've done like a whole episode on this when Shanghai announced their new star exchange, which is spe specifically for technology companies. But we went through all of the domestic exchanges. And um, I think that the easiest way to explain is, as Brian Holt said, it's uh, in the U.S., it's it's sort of application. You just disclose all the risks and, you know, you just uh, you fill out everything and then you can list. But in China, it's an approval-based process, and you know sometimes they will stop approving companies for years, or they will only allow specific sectors to go through. So it doesn't really—it's not like very clear necessarily all the time um, who can list that. And you have, um, you know, again, now they're changing it with the starboard and and the more you know new exchanges. But previously, you had uh, you know you had to be profitable, you had to have this much in capital, right? And of course. Just profitability alone could probably wipe out a lot of people, and then um, could wipe out a lot of U.S. stocks. <laughs> yeah, you can't have you can't have like you can't have you know even like dual class structures, right? That's like something new the Hong Kong Exchange adopted. That's not you know that's I don't think that's in in China, and then uh, not in the old old exchanges. Again, they have a new uh, exchange for technology companies now that does allow this, but even that new exchange has like really long lockup periods. So it's something like three years for core management and um, the core employees. So you kind of don't want to do that if you can you know go to the U.S. Right. And so now I want to see if we can loop Jessica in. Jessica, I hope you fixed any of the issues that you had with the uh, feedback mechanism. You can kind of take whatever string that we've been pulling at now and maybe just continue to pull that thread. Or maybe um, if you want to go into a public equity specific uh, discussion on kind of what you're seeing and what some of the people that you uh, you know chat with on a regular basis that are very experienced in this space are telling you or saying, you know, hey, like this stock's dropping a lot, like this is getting us interested. Because um, one of the other things that I want to discuss eventually, and we can kind of take listener questions, Q&A, is um, a lot of stuff seems to be being thrown out with the bathwater. So the old adage, babies going out with the bathwater, um, a lot of big stuff down, you know, 12, 15%, but you're also seeing some ancillary markets getting hit. Um, for instance, like a lot of Japanese tech, I'm just looking at some charts right now. Um, the Japanese markets opened up a little bit ago. Um, you know, a lot of those names are getting are getting hit too, and SoftBank's down big. So, uh, Jessica, if you want to go maybe the public equities route for a sec, um, and hopefully you fix those um, those audio issues, because I because I'd love to hear some input. Sure. Uh, well, hopefully this is a little better now. Um, Twitter, you know, but uh, yeah. So I guess first of all, I, I'd just like to say the. There's a lot going on um, when you, we're talking about Chinese stocks. Um, the issue, sorry, uh, my dog. <laughs> but uh, I, I mean, the issues are large. You've got, you know, geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and China. And you've got this very long-term uh, concern about the, you know, about uh, the you the argument that you don't even own the business why would you put money in this stock and i've been you know i i've been investing in china for a few years now it seems like periodically this concern kind of flares up and this might be something that uh buy and hold and uh, ray actually could talk about but you know what i'm kind of getting is that the Chinese Communist Party is going to kill the the VIE structure. That seems to be 
that seems to be more of a talking point from U.S. investors than from China specifically. And I'd love to see if anybody else has any insight on that, because that's kind of what I'm gleaming. It seems like this is a persistent fear from U.S. investors, but it doesn't seem like the Chinese Communist Party actually... It doesn't seem like there's any, uh, you know, major imminent threat of that happening. Does somebody else want to want to take that? Because I, I definitely, uh, you know, I, I am not the, I, I am, uh, I can't read the primary sources, but somebody else on this talk might be able to. I can speak to that a little bit. I see some people in the audience that, um, might want to speak up as well. You should raise your hand and have the host move you up. But uh, so there is, I think I understand the uh, the fear about the VIE because it is kind of this weird entity, right? I mean, the, again, like I said, the whole point was it was a loophole created for foreigners to invest in restricted, like literally restricted industries in China. So um, that there is that you know, loophole sense to it. Uh, but, you know, ever since I've been in China working, which is since 2007, yeah, I, I feel like every year it's like the death of the VIE uh, comes up or, or every few years, pro probably closer to every year. And um, I actually think if you look at the fact that the government has now started to regulate VIEs, I actually think that's a positive indication that they're now part of, now someone is overseeing them because before they were in this like weird a legal gray area where no one really wanted to touch them. But as soon as now, starting last year, again, with the antitrust being very, very clear, like VIEs are also subject to regulation. Uh, you know, if your internet platform that's a VIE doesn't matter, we're still going to come after you. I actually think that legitimizes the, uh, uh, the structure, right? Now, that doesn't mean, I think, that that does not necessarily mean that some parts of the VIEs, right, depending on what sector you're in, uh, couldn't can still be prob problematic because again going back to what I was saying earlier the Chinese government has certain specific domestic social issues that they're trying to control for and um, you know uh, and basically regulate so therefore if you are a business so I think you really have to look at each business as it's you know depending on like what sector it is in by itself and not just like freak out about the entire VIE structure itself because that no one I spoke to in China seems to think it's in danger of being completely dismantled. Yeah, and, and you know... Uh, yeah. Go ahead. You're going to say anything, Ray? Sorry, I, I thought you... Okay, uh, so uh, also, just to add uh, a, a, a final point, uh, something that I, I've been seeing a lot here on Fintweet is saying that the VIEs uh, are illegal and, you know, there's a fundamental difference between not being regulated and being illegal by some law you know if there is no law saying anything uh, about it then it doesn't mean that it is uh uh illegal and uh so the, the vie was actually actually uh something that was used by the government on the chinese tech bubble in the 2000s so that comp tech companies could raise some capital uh and you know it was with the the the, the government's uh, backing, if you say, uh, so, you know, it's not something that it is illegal and Alibaba is just, uh, uh, 
listed on the stock market on an illegal way. It's just that it's not regulated. And like uh, Ray said, uh, it's probably for the best that it's being now uh, tackled by the government. I actually agree with, with uh, Rui. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing, pronouncing your name right. I believe the VIE structure was, struck, was first structured in the 90s. Um, and it was put together, you know, obviously, um, to circumvent rules restricting foreign investment in sensitive industries, such as media and telecommunications, um, which were prohibited um, at that time. And it enabled Chinese companies to raise funds from overseas. Um, a number of these companies like Baba, um, you know, have, have, have shares listed in Hong Kong as well. Those are also VIE shares. And these, you know, the USADRs are freely convertible into the Hong Kong shares. Um, I think, you know, the issue is that um, I do agree with Ree that the fact that I think as of July 8th, um, that, that I know that there's some press related to the you know, Chinese government requiring, you know, ministry approval of new IPOs and they're regulating VIEs. Um, you know, the, the Chinese Securities Regulatory Commission, CSRC, um, put together a team um, over the last few weeks to actually regulate them. I mean, that could be interpreted as being positive, you know, because before the fact that they weren't acknowledged at all and they weren't regulated perhaps was a bigger risk. Um, but you know, I think that there will be some companies that um, you know, will not be able to list going forward. I know that there's a Chinese medical data company called LinkDoc that was um, going to list a $200 million IPO um, about two weeks ago, LinkDoc Technology. And, you know, the C CSRC actually forced the company to shelve plans to do a VIE. Um, so I think they're, you know, they're positives in that, you know, the Chinese government playing a part in regulating VIEs legitimizes them to some extent, but I also think they're regulating, uh, VIEs, um, in order to have a bigger hand into, you know, which companies can actually raise capital using the VIE structure and which companies cannot, um, you know, not having any voting rights as a shareholder, you know, not having, you know, a true, a true economic interest is obviously worrisome. Um, you know, that can play into the valuation, that can play into, you know, your sizing. Um, you know, I, I do, the, you know, you do have to have to haircut this issue to some extent. Um, I'm actually very surprised that, you know, that Munger, you know, has such a huge position um, in Baba, and he hasn't really commented in a lot of depth on this issue, but, um, I agree with a lot of Rhee's points, and I, I think that it's something that um, I think, you know, it's only recently been regulated. So I think there will probably be more information shared in the future by the government. Yeah, no, those are those are great points. And that was that was a great discussion. Um, you know, if any, Rhee, Rhee uh, if you've got any comments on that, what I will do is if anybody um, wants to ask questions, just feel free to request to speak and kind of hop in the queue. The only thing I will say is please mute your mic um, if and when I add you as a speaker. But one topic I want to discuss, and maybe this is kind of a great segue into opening up for discussions, is at the end of the day, 
most people on here, I would say probably 99% of people on here listening to this are investors. They're trying to make money, right? They're trying to profit from this. They see a lot of stocks dropping 10, 15, 11%, and they're trying to develop watch lists and they're trying to see, okay, you know, what do I buy? Like 10 cents down, um, you know, 12%, Baba's down 12%, JD's down, um, you know, all these, all these stocks down. It's not even just the Chinese market. It's also the Hong Kong market. And so I am, I am, uh, excited about what's going on in the Hong Kong market with some of these stocks that are trading down. Again, it's babies getting thrown out with the bathwater. And so um, what I want to do is open it up first to uh, my co-hosts here, uh, Jess, Jess uh, Mayhem, Buy and Hold, or even, um, you know, uh, special situations, um, you know, since you jumped in here. What are you guys uh, seeing? What, what's on your watch list? What are you getting excited about as you see stocks falling? And preferably if it's not the obvious names, right? Because everybody's everybody on Twitter is loading up on Baba, right? That's that's kind of the obvious play here. What are some non-obvious um, businesses, stocks that have your interest as the rest of the market falls? So again, anybody can kind of take this and then we'll go with it from there. Yeah, yeah for the sake of contradicting that, that same a little bit, there are two obvious names. I think I've, you know, I'm continuing to avoid small caps um, for various reasons in the in the sector. But you know, focusing on quality, I think you know one name that was down, you know, over 10% uh, intraday was SE. Um, you know, you could have bought that at a 250 handle. Um, SoftBank is also really interesting. I think, you know, it it is not directly associated with this Chinese tech risk. Obviously, it has some investments. Um, and, you know, I guess with SE, you know, Tencent is a large holder, you know, I don't think the market is implying by any means that, um, Tencent will have to, uh, sell its shares in SE, but I do think that, you know, people just say, oh, there's some association and, you know, the names sell off. I actually think that some of the non, the non-Chinese tech names like Kupang, um, you know, will actually do really well if fund flows, if emerging market fund flows move away from Chinese to kind of e-commerce names, uh, other Asian e-commerce names. Um, there are hundreds of smaller companies. I know a lot of guys were talking about Futu and, and Tiger today. Um, and there are even smaller companies um, in medtech and consumer um, that have also sold off. I think, you know, as the days unfold, if this sell-off continues, there will be a ton of opportunities, but just sticking to large, you know, large caps right now. Yeah. So uh, I think that uh, before talking about the watch list and specific names, uh, the first thing you should always be uh, uh, think about when investing in China and it, it should be responsible with, with exposure. Uh, you know, I, I see a lot of people saying that uh, China is investable and, you know, it's an opinion. I, I, I'm not uh, contrary to, to having that, uh, that opinion. I think that for some people it, it is uh, an investable. However, if you know the downside, the risks, understand the business and the context, uh, you'll be able to sleep owning almost everything. Uh, you have to know and respect that investing in China, especially for a non-Chinese, is fundamentally different from investing in the U.S. Uh, the CCP doesn't care about companies increasing market cap. What it cares about is a healthy economic growth. Uh, so the increasing market cap is just a consequence 
to those that uh, play by by those rules. So uh, knowing that and, and knowing that risk profile, uh, I I hold Baba right now. I think it, it's it's uh, I don't want to say a no brainer because if it were a no brainer, then I'll probably be wrong. But uh, it is something that uh, I think it gives a risk reward basis that it is interesting. Uh, I, I don't see a, a lot of sense of going into like super small caps uh, if the big players and the winners that will probably keep winning are already at a discounted valuation. Uh, but my biggest posi position right now in China is JD. Uh, I also am looking at Kaisho and uh, kind of looking at, at Tencent, but don't have a, a position yet. And I think that Jessica can hop in on JD. Uh, she's a, a big bull on JD too. So, what was what was the ticker for uh, that one company? I think you said it was Kwai Shu. Yeah, it's Kwai Shu. Uh, let me just uh, get the ticker. Uh, just one sec. You know, it's also an interesting thing to think about, and this is just because I'm researching um a completely different business it's a it's a uh, it's 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 owned by softbank group so an interesting idea for those that enjoy this sort of thing is um again i'm not trying to plug ticker i know they're a sponsor for the podcast but like if you go on ticker and you look at softbank groups um investments you get a list of what is it one two three four five six seven eight nine ten 11, 12. So 15 from what they've got there. And you've got 15 publicly traded companies. If SoftBank experiences a lot of, um, let's just say, downward selling pressure and they're forced to sell some of these things, that list right there is a great starting point. Um, if, you, you know, if you're a fan of, uh, I think, Masayoshi-san, I hope I said that name right again. Um, but yeah, so, you know, just again, that's, that's a pretty sweet, um, place to look. So Jessica, if you want to pick up on that JD thesis, maybe just talk about where you're looking. And then I've got another question for Ray. Um, I know she mentioned that she comes from the venture capital space. I'm interested to see where she's seeing investment flows at the VC level and at the startup level as, um, as that might give us clues as to where, you know, China's next businesses. Um, and you know, next next big growth businesses are going to come from. So, Jessica, you want to go ahead? Uh, before uh, before Jessica goes, uh, uh, let me just make an assessment here uh, that Tencent, like I said before, uh, you started uh, uh, speaking. Right now, uh, if we take out the investment portfolio, I think it's valued at two hundred and eighty billion dollars. So, I don't think that it is a fair assessment for WeChat and WeChat Pay. So, Tencent is something that. Uh, I know it's the biggest company. I know it's uh, a huge company. I know it's a, a mega cap, but it's something worth uh, be looking at. And that Quasho ticker is uh, 2024 on Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I I personally have a, a much longer watch list than stocks I own for the moment. Um, you know, I'm staying pretty boring. Uh, I, I don't, I, I don't, uh, with this, I, I did add exposure to China today, but I'm not a hero either. Um, so I'm sticking with 
what I'm familiar with and pretty tried and true. Um, I've been long JD for years. Uh, if you're looking for value, I'm really not sure it, I, I'm not sure, this is a value stock. Um, for example, JD in 2020, so that's last year, did over 114 billion in revenue and its market cap right now, uh, I think it, it closed today at about at under a hundred and twelve billion. Yeah, it, it's just yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> that's interesting. It's mind blowing. So, um, I, I do have a lot of exposure to JD. Um, I, I didn't actually add any today. I, I have a lot of exposure to JD already. Um, but if it gets cheap enough, I could be con uh, I could be convinced. Um. I mean, other than that, yeah, I mean, Baba, I, I added some exposure, you know, I added exposure to Baba today. I mean, Baba 180, I, I added a few shares and also um, I sold some puts uh, January 2023 with a $50 strike um, if they execute, which I doubt. But look, anything can happen. I would have a cost basis of less than 130 and, uh, you know, you should, you know, be careful with options. Don't get too exotic. But it's Baba. Um, this is a win-win to me. So um, I, I added exposure there. Um, I do have small positions in Tencent and PDD. Uh, if Tencent had options, I'm not going to lie, I, I probably would have uh, I, I would have added uh, some exposure via options today there as well. Um, I did add some options exposure to Futu. Uh, very, very, very small. Um, again, I'm, I'm not trying to be a hero. I've been watching KE Holdings for a while. Um, not looking to step in right this second. Uh, I've been watching it all year and it's done nothing but fall, but uh, you know, if if things stabilize, it's it's something that will continue to be on my watch list. But I mean, there's a you know, there's a lot of names I'm watching. Uh, uh, Billy B, uh, of course, uh, Billy B, um, uh, the the EV manufacturers, Lee, Xpeng, Neo. Um, been watching Tencent Music for a while. I, I don't uh, and uh, Zep Health. I've been watching for a while. I don't know if there's anything else particularly inter interesting that I've been watching, but again, with this much uncertainty, I I personally think um, you know if you want to go hunting in the bargain bin, I I'm not sure this is the moment. Um, in my opinion, this is the time to stick with what you really know, and that's what I'm doing. Got it. No, that's a that's a great point, and uh, can't believe you sold puts fifty dollars for Baba. That is uh, that is that's pretty. That impressive. is that's pretty impressive. Oh, did I say fifty? A uh, hundred and fifty, a uh, hundred and fifty strike, and the cost basis was I don't know twenty dollars and twenty five cents, something like that. So, I mean, I, I can live with that. You know, if they execute, I, I don't think they will, but you never know. Got it. And yep, something, you know, on the, on, you know, on the vol side, 
it's been, you know, almost 25 years um, you know, on the option side. One thing to be careful about is when you're doing short dated options, you know, not the, the long dated that Jessica is, you know, but even then um, on the way down, not, not, not only is Delta important, but vol spikes in, in huge, you know, moves like this, when you have stocks moving lower and lower and lower, you know, when you're budgeting, you know, for how much margin these options can potentially take. If, for example, tomorrow you sold FUTU options at 95 strike, you know, and, they, and FUTU fell another 10, 15%, you know, not only would you get hit on the Delta, you would probably also see an increase in vol um, for a big move, and that could really hurt. Um, and just a last name for me, you know, given the, the name, the Twitter handle is Special Situations, um, and I am coming out with a very short piece this week on a company called Sohu, which sold um, Sogu um, search engine to Tencent. The deal was announced last fall. I believe regulators approved it, and it's, it's likely going to close this year. Um, Sohu trades at $19 a share. Um, it's going to get $30 in cash as compensation for Sogu, and the real estate in the Remain Co. is, is worth 20 So this is a company shows you how scared people are about what's going on that has $50 of cash real estate and an operating business. And it's currently trading at 19. So that's kind of the one special situation that I'll offer up. Nice. What's the, what's nice. the, what's the, what's the, so it's Sohu, S-O-H-U. Awesome. Yeah. I, I just want to stress. Um, I don't think that anybody should just be dabbling in, options on some of these stocks right now when uh you know when i say i added exposure through uh, through options i am very i am being very clear on the fact that i genuinely consider a cost basis on baba of under 130 to be a win-win. I, I, I am being very, very selective. Um, I, I personally hope we've, uh, we've hit peak fear, and, and if not, I hope it's soon, but I do recognize the risk, and anything, uh, you know, any puts I sold, I fully expect that they are going to get exercised and I, I just want to put that out there. This is not, you know, this shouldn't be treated like Wall Street bets. Uh, there is still a lot of uncertainty. And uh, don't YOLO because, yeah, if they're down another 15% tomorrow, it's going to hurt when you want to get out and you can't or you have to pay a lot to cover. This, this is not me trying to make just a... Uh, you know, a, a, a quick, uh, a quick buck. I, I am being very long-term focused on, uh, on these options. Yeah. And I could do a entire Twitter spaces on, on, on option selling. So Ray, I'm going to hand it over to you before we go to um, get some questions from the audience. I know I've got four people queued up. So uh, Connor, I see you every time you wave your hand, uh, you are getting one step closer. So I appreciate that. But Ray, um, if you want to talk to us maybe about what you're seeing in terms of investment, maybe at the early stage VC level, um, where, where capital's flowing and, um, you know, where, where you see capital potentially flowing maybe in and out of if this. 
specifically this tech broader market sell off continues and you start to see maybe some capital and liquidity dry up in the Chinese, um, you know, tech tech scene going from public all the way down to the venture space. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, the liquidity in the venture space hasn't been impacted yet. Of course, that's a much longer time period. And so far, I have I've been actively keeping, you know, my pulse on whether or not LPs uh, think this is think the Chinese government's regulatory scrutiny is a problem for them, you know, deploying into venture funds in China. So far, no, but uh, I'll let you know if the temperature changes. Uh, I would say in venture right now, there is, or actually the last, this is really for the last couple of years, let's call it three, three plus years. Uh, it's really changed from, uh, you know, 10 years ago when everyone's investing in new digital platforms. Uh, now platforms are just too expensive to create. It's too expensive to acquire customers. Uh, there are enough platforms, right? They're, they all have very large market shares. Uh, so people are basically now building things on top of the platforms on the consumer front. And that would be primarily in the form of consumer brands. Uh, some of these are purely digital brands. A lot of the money is actually flowing into offline brands because there is a whole sort of physical infrastructure upgrade inside China happening right now. Um, you know, I don't know if people here are familiar with the concept of dual circulation that the the government keeps on talking about, but a huge part of that is expanding domestic consumption. Uh, so that's what's happening. Um, in terms of uh, consumer brands, most of these brands that I talked to I actually did, uh, I actually just wrote for TechCrunch on one of the more visible brands called Genki Force, just doing bottled drinks, selling them online and, and, and offline as well. Most of these brands do have international aspirations. So while I don't think that you need to worry about it right now, but if you were in consumer brands, uh, if you were in consumer brands uh, in big, like these like big, you know, Starbucks, Nike, Coca-Cola, whatever, I can just tell you that there's a lot of Chinese startups trying to go after these foreign brands and, and they do want the international business as well. So they're not content to just stay in China. Uh, so if, you, if you're a big consumer brand investor, you might want to start paying attention. Probably won't happen for a couple of years, but that's, that is a trend. On the enterprise side, I would say everything is, uh, basically enterprise is a much more white space. And it's really in the last five, six years after cloud got much more uh, you know cheaper and you have the infrastructure being built out that there is more uh, investment on the enterprise software side, but that's happening just across all levels. The thing is, the thing is, I would say most of these companies that I talk to um, want to list domestically, right? Because so first of all, even though they're growing very quickly, the revenues are a fraction of what you see here in the States. And, and then also this is a business software. It's going to be really hard to explain to investors that and, you know, earlier as I was talking about Shanghai has this new technology exchange. It's actually trying to accelerate businesses like, you know, enterprise SaaS companies. They actually really want these companies to list so they would get faster approval. Uh, it's just that none of these companies or very few of these companies are big enough yet. So uh, so as they grow bigger next, you know, in the next couple of years, I think you'll see a lot more of these IPOs. It's just that I think a good amount of them uh, are considering domestic listings. Um, and then, of course, within enterprise software, you also have really high growth players like, you know, in cybersecurity, et cetera. That's just a huge booming space. But really doesn't allow for foreign capital. They're actually very, very strict about that. So um, unfortunately, I guess, in terms of what you can invest in as a foreign investor in upcoming listings, it's probably 
more on the consumer uh, consumer side, I would say. Well, that sounds super exciting because I love consumer facing companies. I mean, one of one of one of the thesis or one of the investment theses that I'm really trying to lean into is this idea of um, cult stocks and brands forming cults, um, you know, around products and, 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 and certain services, which leads me to the question as someone, you know, as an American, never been to China, um, you know, has has no idea culturally what it's like. Um, what are some consumer preferences or maybe consumer tastes, uh, nuances that, um, that companies experience, or even that, you know, Chinese consumers, let's say favor one thing or another, or they like, you know, this, this type of, uh, this, you know, they like this type of brand because it does this thing. That's a little bit different than what a U.S. brand would do. Um, are there, you know, what are, what are some of those nuances that a U.S. investor like myself wouldn't pick up on? Yeah, well, there's, I feel like that's a really big topic, but I can just highlight two things. So for Chinese brands appealing to the domestic Chinese audience, there are two clear trends right now. So you can either capitalize on Chinese culture, which is a lot of like actually classic Chinese culture. So, you know, you know, calligraphy, like the palace, you know, things, things that from ancient China, um, that people just like love these elements. And then you also have nostalgia for the 80s and 90s in particular. I think actually you see that here in the US as well, right? Sort of like this vintage retro, uh, you know, whatever. Like people people like things from their childhood, right? Where a lot of us are millennials and we have spending power and we wanna make things, uh, buy things that, you know, make us feel good about, I guess, our childhood. Uh, so that's a big trend. But those things are not, you know, overall I would say, uh, for the brands, you know, the those are just elements, like parts of their strategy. Uh, the ones that are really trying to go heavily abroad, they're actually just highly adaptable and um, will very much localize their operations. So if it's a brand that is going to be really successful, I think what you really need to be looking for is a, you know, company that iterates very quickly. And that is something that Chinese brands right now are doing a starting to do a pretty good job of you see that um i think there so first of all there's already a consumer brand that's listed uh, in on the u.s stock exchange called uh, yatsen yatsen group so ysg is the ticker and i don't know if they're the greatest example they've gone down a lot since their ipo but you can dig into a little bit more to see that's sort of the company that's sort of the brand that's uh and and you know their methodology and maybe a little bit stronger than then, it, it are going to be the new consumer brands coming out of China. They're going to be very fast at iterating, really good at digital marketing, and then also drawing global inspiration uh, while trying to capitalize on you know some some Chinese advantages, including proximity to the supply chain. That is awesome, and that's a topic. Uh, just reminds me that I need to get you on my podcast uh, ASAP because we could go down the rabbit hole in that. Uh, but what I want to do, because we're almost approaching an hour, I do want to open up to questions. And my man Connor Walden has been so, uh, so kind with his time. So, Connor, uh, I'm going to add you as a speaker. Go ahead and ask a question. Uh, I would try to limit it to one, maybe two, because um, I want to get a lot of people um, asking questions if they have them. So uh, I'm going to add you as a speaker and the floor is yours. Can you guys hear me okay? Yep. All right, perfect. I'll, I'll start out. So hi, I'm Connor, and I'm a Babaholic. So I'm sure you guys, some of you have seen me. Uh, 
on Twitter, funny enough. But um, yeah, I think you guys really hit the nail on the head. And it's been a great discussion. Um, I definitely agree with you guys on the VIE structure. It kind of seems that anytime that these stocks start to get hit, uh, that's kind of the boogeyman that, you know, the people who are going to be bearish on these companies, regardless, they want to bring that out um, to hit me specifically over the head as the punching bag, I guess, for Alibaba specifically. But, um, you know, one of the things that I kind of had a question that I want to open up to you guys about is right now you definitely see a lot of people, at least kind of in FinTwit, um, that are using this as an opportunity to buy into companies that, you know, I really feel like personally, you know, this is the first time that we've seen great companies go on significant discounts since, you know, the COVID crash back in March. Um, so do you guys think that this is going to be a time where asset managers in different funds are going to be more so pulling out of Asia and going to buy into companies like SoftBank and Coupang, uh, like Special Sits had uh, mentioned? Or do you think that this is actually going to be a time where we're going to see more funds and asset managers start to allocate more money because things like the VIE structure are being more solidified? Um, and now, you know, versus the United States, where our great companies are obviously trading at historical premiums, you know, um, you can take on some risk, but maybe get a much higher reward by investing in the Alibaba's in 10 cents. Um, you know, so that's kind of what I have for you guys. If you want to comment a little bit on that, do you think that most of the money is going to be putting going into China or do you think it's going to be leaving China and trying to find other places in Asia to meet their allocations? I think that coming from, you know, background of institutional asset manager, I think there are a lot of funds that are probably just going to keep their positions. You know, they may add, um, but there's also something for, for at least on the hedge fund side specifically that I like to speak to called career risk. And, you know, whenever a PM, a portfolio manager is thinking about an investment and they have a limited partner in LP, a pension fund, endowment, insurance company, sovereign wealth fund, they have to meet with that fund and speak with, you know, the allocator about their decision-making. And when something is a clear risk, right, like ESG or the continuing, um, you know, China's going to exceed U.S. GDP. It's, it's inevitable. Um, you know, their, their military might is also going to improve their ability to, um, you know, build advanced weaponry, their um, the ability to excel at technology, all of that's going to change and, and it's going to be a threat to U.S. government. And I think the U.S. government, even Biden, who I thought would be softer, um, is realizing that they have, you know, the government has no choice but to be very strict about, you know, intellectual property, um, you know, especially tech companies, pri privacy, consumer data, and trade. And I think the, unfortunately or fortunately, the relationship between China and the U.S. is going to get worse before it gets better. And the issue there is as, as, a, as a large investor um, that has to deal with allocators, right, you have to explain your investment. And if an investment continues to go down 10, 20, 30%, it's very difficult for a portfolio manager then to increase an allocation you know, without being very convicted. And I don't think anyone really has the answer as to, you know, what China's end game is um, with respect to um, some of the names we've discussed. So, you know, time will tell, but in the short term, I think it would be very difficult 
for an institutional fund manager to increase an allocation very dramatically. I think, you know, the Blackstones of the world will give you a politically correct answer because they already have a lot of money in Asia. Um, hey, we're going to continue an investor over a long period of time. It's interesting. The growth rates are high. They'll give you that kind of plug answer. But if you were to ask them today, will you allocate $10 billion of fresh capital to the region immediately? They would say, no, we need to do more diligence. So um, it's, it's a really tough, tough spot for a lot of institutional fund managers. It's actually probably easier for individual investors to take advantage of an opportunity like this. Awesome. Great question, Connor. Um, we're moving you as a speaker so that we can get some more requests in. Next one comes from David Kay. So for those that don't know, David is co-founder of Snapshot Games. Uh, I actually did a podcast with him, and it was one of my absolute favorites. I've got a soft spot for video games and all things video game tech. So as a disclaimer, if you guys have any investment ideas, both public and private, around the video game space, please let me know. It's one of my favorite, favorite investment thematics. So David, go ahead. The floor is yours. David, you there? Yep. Sorry, it was uh, took a little time for me to, to connect. Um, yeah, just a, a, a quick, just a really kind of quick practical question um, uh, for just if, if you have access to if you have, if a, your brokerage supports international stock trading, um, and for example, let's say uh, you have access to um, the actual Hong Kong listed ten cent shares. Is it a good idea, I mean, fees aside, is it a good idea to sidestep the kind of ADR issue and just buy the, the Hong Kong listed um, as a way of just, uh, you know, owning directly? That is a good question. I'm sure um, everyone will have an answer on this one. But for, for, for Baba, right, I think both the Hong Kong shares and the ADRs, they're both VIE structures. And one is freely convertible into the other. I know that with interactive brokers, I can toggle, you know, investing in Hong Kong shares and I'm able to do so. But I think you have to look at every name individually um, and make, make your decision based on, you know, single name analysis. I would also say, you know, if you're investing in a market that's overseas, be concerned about the overlap of when you're awake and when that market's awake. I mean, you don't necessarily need to be consistently managing, you know, your positions every second of every day. But if you're looking to get in and get out, it can be a lot more tricky if it's trading on a time zone that's kind of inverse of your regular hours. And so that's something that I would keep an eye on. Yeah, that's the worst thing to wake up to, by the way, from someone <laughs> that has uh, that has invested in overseas markets is to go to bed happy with your purchase and then to wake up and just get that huge red number and the rest of the U.S. market hasn't even opened up yet to add to the fire. I actually get that with the U.S. market because I'm, I'm, in, uh, I'm on the west coast of the U.S., so I always wake up and it's uh, usually the market's open, whereas actually Hong Kong, it still starts trading quite civilized, you know, early evening. My time is quite good. Anyway, that was my question, so you can knock me back to the audience. Sounds good. All right, so our next... Okay, so we've got... C.U. Lee, who he was uh, one of the people when I shot out the tweet that prompted this discussion, I said, hey, who should I get on this Twitter spaces to discuss um, 
you know, the, the China tech sell-off. And he was one of the people that requested and his DMs aren't open. So as luck would have it, he has requested to speak. So see you Lee. Thanks so much for coming on this spaces and I'm stoked to have your input. You should be connecting soon. Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yep, I can cool. hear you. Yep. Oh, thank you very much for everybody. Uh, it's a it's a wonderful conversation. I actually just want to respond to David's question because I, I actually studied that uh, quite a bit, and uh, I will share my uh, my findings with you guys. So it's right the the ADR the Tencent is is really listed in Hong Kong. It's it's different from Baba, for example. It's not duly listed in U.S. So the uh, the the both Hong Kong the Tencent and the U.S. Tencent is under the same BIE structure, so there's no difference there. The only difference here is so-called delisting risk, right? Like if there is a political struggle that somehow they have to delist that from U.S., then that became a, a risk. Now, that risk in general has almost no downside for institutional investor because all the, uh, all the stocks are fungible across exchanges, so they can pretty much move that off US and move to Hong Kong with almost no loss. For individual investors, slightly different. In most cases, legally it's totally doable, but most of the broker is not willing to do it because the unit unit of economics just doesn't work, right? It's too expensive to move individual retail customer to another exchange. There's tax problems, there are all kinds of issues. Uh, so, so in other words, in short term, if that happens, you will have short-term volatility, but the market needs from large institutional point of view doesn't change. That's also why you will see the U.S. and Hong Kong, uh, most of the uh, stocks listing Hong Kong and the U.S., including Baba, Tencent, the price difference is almost trivial. Like there's no, no price differences uh, over the years. Um, yeah, I thought I'd just give that give that a little bit my 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 thoughts on that subject awesome thanks so much and and stick around i'm i'm, I'm going to keep you as a speaker so if you just want to mute yourself um because i know that you came requested and so i want to make sure that um any feedback you've got or any or any thoughts you have um you know you've got you've got access to so if you want to go ahead and mute your mic i'm going to get to the next question from uh, ONG OG at Energy Credit One X Hedge Fund slash Prop Dex Dex Desk. There it is. It's getting late over here. Hot takes on energy tech markets and politics out of Houston. Can you guys hear me? I just got booted for a sec. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Perfect. I was about to lose my mind on Twitter if this thing just ended, but would have been par for the course tonight. All right. ONG OG. Let's get you on here. Ask away. Uh, he's still connecting. So, um, all right. Yep. You're good to go, OG. 
Sorry, can you hear me? Yeah, actually, crystal clear. Uh, so I missed the earlier part of the conversation. Maybe this is a question for Rui. Um, just curious your thoughts on, you know, really what's the message CCP is sending being so heavy handed in these regulations. I mean, it's not that long ago that here in the U S we basically destroyed, you know, the for-profit, uh, education here, you know, DeVry, Apollo, et cetera, et cetera, got regulated out of business, but, uh, certainly not as draconian, and kind of a part two to that question is, uh, you know, the, clearly we're, we're focused on kind of the investment side of things here. But from a running a business perspective, do you think that G and the CCP take into any consideration? They're going after the monopolies. They're going after the big companies. But there's a lot of smaller uh, Chinese companies that have global aspirations. I think of somebody like an Agora who... If you look at their revenue stream, the ex-China growth is growing at kind of over 200% last quarter. And, you know, as a customer or potential customer of, of a company like that, you see the stock get cut in half, get cut by 80%. It starts to hurt, you know, their business at the end of the day and hurt those global aspirations. Uh, you know, certainly a company like that in the pole position versus Zoom and Twilio and others is there any thought that, hey, we're kind of killing off global aspirations for some of these companies? Sure, I can answer quickly. I think we did already go over this in the beginning of the conversation, which is that I think you have to separate out the policies targeting the tech companies as being very, very separate from everything else that's happening. And I know there's a lot happening, uh, but the tech ones really is specific to education. And in fact, I think if you if you follow Beijing Channel, which is a new uh, substack opened up by one of the state-owned media reporters, he just did a um, he just did a a piece on the uh, education industry and you can actually trace this back to 2018 actually i can even trace it back to 2017 when the ministry of uh, education basically said we want to you know revamp our system so that it is half half college and vocational school and uh but since 2018 there's been just very clear signals from the government on how they don't want uh, capital to distort the education industry. And in China, I think, without going into too much detail, actually, but you can find a lot of people tweeting about this or writing about this, the um, the, cap the after-school tutoring system had a lot of flaws, right? So um, I, I really think you have to basically take the take the hits on this sector as completely separate from everything else that's happening. I, I do want to emphasize, though, I don't think I talked about this earlier in the conversation, which is that I do think you can expect sort of regulation overall to happen. This is not like the, this is not, you know, a one-time thing. This is overall the consumer industry, internet industry is going to be more regulated. And that's if you just compare the, like, if, if you compare the laws between China and other developed countries, um, China has been far less regulated. So there was like almost no antitrust. There was, like I said, nothing uh, on VIEs, right? VIE like mergers, people like didn't even know what really to do with them. Um, and then now that's starting to kick in because China is at a state of growth where the economy, especially the digital economy is strong enough, right? And it's now if it doesn't get regulated, it's actually going to actively cause harm to consumers. So the net benefits that arose out of the you know efficiencies from internet technologies is actually being erased by 
anti-competitive behaviors. So I think you have to consider, yeah, you have to consider education, again, completely separate from the other industries that are being regulated. Awesome. Fantastic answer. Um, OG, I'm going to boot you as a speaker, unfortunately, real quick. If you have another question, always hop back in. But I, we, we're, we're getting more and more requests, so nothing personal there. Um, Rajesh Rai has one quick question or has a, has a question. So uh, Rajesh, go ahead. Um, you're connecting now. Uh, ask away. Brendan, thanks for uh, allowing me the, the opportunity to ask a question, and thanks uh, to the panel as well. So my question to the panel is, uh, what is the level of exposure to Chinese equities that uh, you guys are comfortable with? Thank you. Yeah, so uh, I can answer that one. Uh, I think it's it's really personal. Uh, you know, like I said before on the, uh, on the panel, uh, if you know the risks, uh, you know the the context. You know the business, and you know the upside and the, the downside. Then uh, you can practically own anything at any size uh, and sleep well with it if you know what you're doing. But you know, it comes to to uh, personal preference. I'm heavily concentrated right now. I only own four stocks, and half of them are Chinese ones. I have uh, close to thirty percent exposure exposure on Chinese stocks. But I know that the risks uh, are far greater than uh, owning like 10 or 15 uh, U.S. stocks. Uh, maybe not uh, the, the, the super high multiples ones, but I think it really comes down to your personal preference. And I'm sure that uh, everyone here will give a different answer, but uh, that's my. I just want. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I, I've, oh, go ahead. Uh, I've got. Uh... Right now, I've got my, except for JD, which I've been long for years and, and actually have been nibbling at um, uh, for the last few weeks. Uh, the, the other stocks I've got sized is a bit more of a a, a moonshot, I guess, uh, although I, I did up exposure today. But that, to be honest, is more based on the charts than um, my personal feelings on the uh, uh, the opportunities ahead for growth. Um, I, I, I can see the chart. I, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not stupid and I'm not a hero. So that's why, um, except for JD, which has grown over the years, the other, the other positions, which are much newer, are sized as more of a moonshot because again, I can see the chart. I do know what they look like. So um, I will say that, you know, for me, it's been sort of opportunistic. I'm looking at the weakness uh, over the last couple of weeks and, and really in the last couple of days starting to allocate in nibbling here and there. For me, position sizing, I don't think I'm going to go over 5 or 10% of liquid net worth in anything uh, in China. That's just me. But what I do see that makes this more interesting to me is, you know, China's economic cycle is more mature than ours is. It's They've gone faster and further um, and they recovered from COVID more rapidly. And so their market's actually pretty much been in a bear market recently. I mean, by any technical measure, you say more than a 20% drawdown from peak to trough and we're beyond that. And their market peaked in February. 
And so I see some of the discounts now is interesting because we're, we're at levels, if you measure some of these uh, Chinese indices that we haven't seen since last summer. And it's hard to find, you know, equivalent stocks in other parts of the world that have those kinds of multiples that have that kind of future growth potential. You know, regulatory risk uh, is certainly being priced in more or less. So we could certainly have more downside. But for me, you know, this is this is this is an appetizing situation. And I'm a contrarian investor. So, you know, full full disclosure. But uh, when I see this kind of price action and I see fear getting ahead of logic, uh, or at least so it seems, uh, that's when I start to get interested in this stuff. But I don't make it a big part of my portfolio. I'm actually very opposite to buy and hold. He has a very concentrated portfolio strategy. Uh, for me, my individual stock, the maximum position size uh, at a cost is 3%. And uh, I have about five, six Chinese names um, between 2 to 3%. So for me, it's 12 to 15% total of my portfolio. That has really nothing to do with China per se. Uh, uh, in the meantime, um, what I so recently I, I wrote some article about Baba. I, my biggest position is Baba, and uh, uh, I actually published an article recently in on Seeking Alpha. If anyone interested, can take a look. I uh, basically break that apart and uh, assess the value of it. Um, but the the couple of things. One is I have a conversation with a lot of people recently, right? And a lot of, lot of them talk about uh, China risk, China risk, right? But when I push harder, ask them, what exactly the China risk uh, you think justify the discount between the Chinese firms and the corresponding U.S. firms? I really hear any good answers, right? I don't get a good answer other than the, I would consider a fir- like, like a first level thinking, right? So to me, that is a good indication that there are uh, more than just, there are a lot of like fear uh, reflecting the price. And that was actually about two weeks ago. And the, the last two weeks, actually, a lot more dramatic changes happened. Uh, so, so one thing is I always zoom out to ask, you know, if we look at, look back 2000 years, the percentage of time that China is leading the GDP output globally is actually pretty astonishing, right? Like if you look at the last 2000 years. And it was just the last, I would say 150 years uh, that China fall back really badly, right? And uh, not until the last, I would say two to three decades, uh, China came back. So if you look at the history, looking at how China was dominating globally for a long period of time, lost it and it came back. And put that into perspective, thinking about what it takes for the government, whether it's CCP or whoever was in charge in different departments, what is their incentive and a willingness to destroy what they have done over the last two, three decades in the capital market? Uh, that's where, to me, is study history, study geopolitics, and put that into perspective that should be put into your thinking about the risk. That's just my take. Yeah. Uh, I, I just need to say for a moment, that, that yeah, was amazing. Too, yeah, I just want to say for a moment, that was amazing on Fintwit. If you've been holding a stock for a few years, people are amazed. 
and he's talking about 2,000 years of history. I, I genuinely mean it. I love it. That was amazing. All right, so real quick, real quick before buy and hold uh, goes, uh, Ray shot me a message. She's actually got to leave at 7 p.m. Uh, her time, so it's coming up in about five or so minutes. So, um, you know, I just wanted to give Ray – kind of the kind of the floor here before she goes before we dive back into questions um ray first of all thanks so much for coming on like i really really appreciate you taking over an hour of your time which i know is extremely valuable to give us a ton of information that's high quality um and so if there's anything that you want to leave uh with everybody listening um maybe a great idea is just to say you know where can people go to find you and then a cool question that I ask at the end of every podcast that I do is if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? So I'm just going to let you kind of have these last couple of minutes before you go, um, you know, just again to thank you and let everybody know where they can find you and all about your podcast and stuff like that. Yeah, sure. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, podcast is Tech Buzz China. Also have a Twitter handle there. Um, we don't to t- haven't updated the podcast for a while, but we have a live cast series. So, for example, earlier you were asking about, uh, you know, new tech trends in China, interview C- uh, CEOs and VCs on the live cast. Um, you can learn more about, yeah, like the consumer trends I was talking about, the SaaS trends I was talking about uh, there. Awesome. And then if you could have dinner with anybody from the past or the present, who would it be and why? Uh, there'd be lots of people, but I'll just say, I'll just say Charlie Munger. I just, that's actually why I saw, I saw Vinehold's uh, photo like a long time ago and started talking to him. And I was just like, I, you know, I just have to respond. Uh, He had a nice comment on my timeline, but also I just, you know, love the duo, but Charlie more. Awesome. Well, again, right. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, I really do mean uh, mean it when I say I got to get you on the podcast. And like I said, I, I, I try to listen to yours every week. So um, I know I speak for you know everybody here. Um, thank you so much for, for, for coming on. And we're going to dive right back in to questions. Um, so I am going to open it up to long, short trader, LST. Um, LST is going to come in hot and he's going to come in guns blazing. The reason why I say that is because he tweeted five minutes ago, are any of the speakers qualified to opine other than uh, Ray? Opinions are like assholes. Everyone has one. So with that intro, I'm going to give it to Long Short Trader, and I'm going to have my finger on the remove slash mute their mic button <laughs> ready to rock and roll. Um, so LST, thanks for coming on. By the way, you had a good roast um, of one of the tweets I sent out. I think it was a Microsoft tweet. And um, uh, you basically pointed out that I cherry picked a little bit of the data to show like a really good Kager. And so, uh, you know, kudos to you for kind of noticing that and, and, and calling me out on that. Oh, I think he just left. That's a bummer. I was trying to get roasted. Anyways, oh, there he is. He's coming back. All right, LST, the floor is yours. Question for anybody. All right, it's all you, LST. Go ahead with the question. All right. Okay, and he's back to listener. All right, so two strikes and you're out. Bummer. Um, 
I'm going to go to Philip Martinelli. Oh, you changed your uh, profile picture. That's why I don't recognize you. All right, Philip, uh, ask away. One question. It looks like he's connecting now. Uh, by the way, guys, thanks so much for sticking with me. It's almost 10 o'clock here in my time. I'm, I'm probably going to end this uh, pretty soon, but looks like people are enjoying it. So, Hello? Phil, go ahead. Yep, I can hey, hear Brandon, you. Brandon, if you guys can hear me, uh, I can't hear you. So maybe that's what happened to LST. Potentially. Um, I can hear you. So if you want to go ahead and ask your question or try again, I mean, totally up to you. Looks like I lost him too. Man, we are just <laughs> we're crashing the server. Can we uh, right, can we take a second just to respond to that question that LST had? I mean, I feel like FinTwit. the, oh, please, you know, the value is the community. We don't all have to be right or wrong. It's more a matter of being able to you know challenge each other's cognitive biases and learn from each other's strengths and weaknesses and insights that each other may have. I mean. I don't know that it's a matter of qualification, although I will say it's awesome to have someone like Ray on and to have someone with her level of experience be able to share her insights. But I think we all have things that are worth sharing that may help other people that are listening. And I know there's this temptation to kind of, you know, talk down to strangers on the Internet when we're safely hiding behind a keyboard. But, you know, the way I look at it is really like we're all here trying to help each other out. I think at least the people that are on Fintwit doing it the right way, that's the goal. And so we may not have every Agreed. answer, but as long as we're able to shed light on areas each other may not be aware of, I think there's value. Yeah, I mean, 100%. Like, I tried shorting Square and got dunked on by Dan Loeb, and it was one of the best, most cathartic experiences of my <laughs> life. And that's credit credit to this credit to this platform. So um, it looks like Philip tried again, so I'm going to add Philip as a speaker. Um, if this doesn't work, I'm going to short Tesla in the morning. Just kidding, I'm not. I'm going to get – or not Tesla, <laughs> uh, Twitter. Tesla, Tesla's on my mind, probably short term too. But um, And you're going to get a lot of DMs, my friend. <laughs> I don't have a view on, right. a, on that name, but you're going to have a lot of DMs. All right, Philip, go ahead. Looks like you're a speaker. Just uh, unmute yourself, and uh, let's see if this works. You there, Philip? Yeah, I can hear you now. Really Oh, beautiful. So. All right. Quick, ask your question before it beats All right, you. here we go. So um, I joined. I've only been on for like the past 15 or so minutes. But my question is really about tail risk. So like I'm long Alibaba calls um, for a very small portion of my portfolio because I think that like the left tail risk that it ends up being a zero is significant. So I just wanted to hear everyone like talk about the left tail risk, whether you think like it's the VIE structure getting invalidated or like, you know, if Taiwan gets invaded, like what do you think happens? Like there seems to be a range of scenarios where things can go very, very wrong. And I know, you know, I heard CU speak about he has a pretty low positioning, like 15 percent. You know, I'm around 10 percent in some of my accounts. Um, in terms of like China exposures, but I just wanted to hear everyone like talk through how they think about that left tail risk where everything goes to zero. I mean, at least if you're a U.S. based investor. 
I mean, I think one of the things that we, and I think that's a really good question. I think one of the things that we need to do as individual investors first is kind of, you know, quantify what, what risk we're comfortable taking and then take a look at where we think China is in their own respective economic cycle. And I spoke about this a little earlier, but I mean, China's basically been in a, in a bear market for equities. Their equities peaked in February and they've been discounted significantly since their, their uh, recovery is, is slowing down. And you see that across multiple metrics. You see that across GDP. You see that across service sector ISM. You see that across the PMIs the- today. I mean, the P- the PMIs were terrible, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's a lot of there's a lot of yellow and red flags flashing for the economy. So you know, if you're an investor and you kind of look at the relationship between the economy and equities, you know, typically what we see is it's a little counterintuitive. Uh, and basically, what we're looking for is some sign that maybe PBOC is going to come back in and be a little more accommodative. Uh, to start supporting their equities again. And I don't think we're that far off from those buttons starting to be pushed. We got a little hint with the uh, with the reserve rate uh, being cut by 50 bips. We got a little hint with uh, PBOC kind of saying they're still here. They're not necessarily you know needing to do anything near term. They didn't uh, cut their benchmark rate in the most recent meeting. But I don't think they're ignoring the softening economic data. I don't think they're ignoring the economic implications of the floods. Um, you see also the CCP is saying, hey, you know, we want all of our biggest firms to be hiring lots of graduates. And we know from Chinese history that where there's a high rate of unemployment and where there's a high rate of inflation, both can push up socioeconomic risks, you know, uh, civil disobedience and, and, and worse. And we have kind of both of those cropping up because the floods could push up food prices, but we could also have higher unemployment from a slack in the economic cycle. So I think we're kind of gradually going into an environment where you know, I don't know that regulators are going to lean too hard if there's systemic risk uh, and those knock on, you know, those knock on uh, impacts begin to become real macro impacts. So I think, you know, the fear may be just a little bit overblown here. I feel like the selling in the last couple of days has been just like straight up, just sell anything that has China on it or any link to China. Like uh, Jay mentioned earlier, uh, Special Sits uh, mentioned that, um, you know, C Limited was just getting ravaged today and it didn't really make a lot of sense, you know, so I would say in terms of uh, where it goes from here, in terms of tail risk, you know, a lot of the time things look the absolute worst when perhaps we're, you know, we're starting to get through the worst of it. So I think some of the sort of capitulative tone on Twitter, you know, FinTwit's kind of ultra bearish China, you know, Shanghai A shares going to zero, so on and so forth. I'm sure people have seen the hyperbole. I, I feel like we're getting closer to scraping something that resembles a bottom. I mean, if you look at FXI, head and shoulders patterns played out on that ETF, it could go a little bit further, maybe down to like 36, 38 in that range. But I I feel like the selling is probably getting closer to being exhausted. Um, So, you know, obviously the CCP can prove me wrong and do something tomorrow and completely change the game. But with all the information we have in hand and everything we've seen so far, it kind of feels like people are overestimating the reach and the depth of what all is happening. Man, you said head and shoulders pattern. I got so excited that somebody else uses technicals here in classical patterns. Oh, that was beautiful. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, Phil, thanks for thanks for the question. Um, so, all right, I've got. I'm gonna um, I'm gonna wrap this up a little bit. Didn't realize that we're going over 10 p.m. I did notice that I've got Jen Zhu that's listening, um, executive chair at Commons Project, and she had a really good TED talk on. Um, why getting paid for your data is important um, for an inclusive AI. And it seems like just uh, reading a few of her tweets, she has some opinions um, 
on just the regulations in Chinese uh, e-commerce payments and delivery platforms. And so what I will do, uh, you know, for the last couple of minutes, again, if anybody has any questions and wants to uh, speak, just please request. I'm going to open it up to Jen, um, you know, if she wants to, uh, you know, say any questions or, you know, kind of discuss any thoughts um, on her end on kind of what she's seeing from the China Chinese tech space uh, that she covers. But if not, then we'll just kind of go and roll with questions. Uh, looks like Ryan Park has one question. So Ryan, um, just one more question. Um, and your line is up. And uh, this might end up being the last question. So no pressure, Ryan. But if you don't make this a good question, um, I'm going to block you from future uh, <laughs> Twitter spaces. High stakes. <laughs> Yep, that's the only way to play. We are talking China. All right, Ryan, go ahead, man. It's not looking good, Ryan. No pressure. You know, it's probably the t Twitter tech bugs. It's been killing me. I've been kicked out of a bunch of things this week. Yeah, that's too bad because I just removed it. it it's that's probably time to uh, to put out a thesis on shorting Twitter because Spaces is broken. Yep. Their best All right, let's, let's let's do yeah let's do this let's um gfp uh you're gonna be the last question um make it make it quick and then and then we'll wrap this whole thing up um and jen if you're listening i would love to get you on the podcast at some point so if you don't want to do the spaces um i'll shoot you a dm and maybe we can get connected on the podcast so gfp again same sort of thing you better ask a good question or um it's not gonna look good hello everybody Oh, there we go. Okay. What's up, man? Ask your question. Okay. I wanted to know what are your thoughts on 360 Digitech because it's one of the fastest growing companies this 2021, I think, for X. Uh, and I would be willing to wait, I don't know, two or three years and I, and I could manage the volatility. So what are your thoughts on this company um, if you were thinking medium term or long term? Thank you. Anybody want to take a shot? He's talking about QFIN, Q-F-I-N. Yeah. I, I, I don't know the name really well. Okay. Yes, I am talking about QFIN. Yeah. Uh, it is a fintech. Yeah, I don't, I don't think, I don't think anybody's done enough research on it. So. Um, okay. Thank you. Yeah. All good, man. All good. Thanks so much for thanks so much for uh, asking the question. All right, looks like we've got Jen Zhu on here. Uh, that worked. Awesome, Jen. Thanks so much. Um, if you want to kind of give some thoughts, maybe maybe we can have a couple final final questions. Um, what what you're seeing in the Chinese e-commerce space from a regulation standpoint, and then maybe um, if this is a targeted you know sell off by the by the CCP in the in in, in the broader tech um, you know index. Thank you, Brendan. I actually missed the most of the uh, discussion in the beginning. I saw Ray's a friend. I saw Ray's talking. So I came in. I missed most of the context of the discussion. So apologies. Um, I just want to offer one consideration. Um, often uh, when anything relates to China, um, it's hard to see without the political lens. Um, but I would, I, I would challenge everyone to see beyond the political lens a little bit and uh, put consumers 
uh, into the equation and um, and see what this kind of uh, regula- regulatory crackdown is actually doing. So, for example, with the um, uh, uh, you know, uh, food delivery um, uh, regulation uh, require minimum wage for uh, those people delivering food everywhere, riding on the motorcycle. Um, for the education, online education, post-school online education, um, because it has become such a lucrative uh, business, um, uh, you know, as uh, any of you have experienced uh, Chinese uh, uh, primary uh, middle school education would know that the, the school, the burden of, uh, uh, you know, n- normal education, regular education is already so heavy. And then this kind of uh, sense of competitiveness and, you know, peer pressure to put the kids um, into this very commercial driven post-school heavy um, uh, tutoring uh, burden. It's not necessarily very good for the next generation or the society. Um, so a lot of those regulations, I think uh, beyond the share price, uh, at least the share price in the short term. I heard someone was mentioning, it seems like the sell-off um, is uh, has peaked. I will, I tend to agree with that. I think there's a, a overreaction because a large part of the market is unable to see beyond the political lens. So I would encourage everyone to see the regulation, what that means to consumer. And then lastly, I think, um, kind of battling with big tech is um, is a global thing. Uh, it's not only just a Chinese thing, right? And um, what we see in the U.S., most of the response is very much on from antitrust uh, angle. And from Europe, uh, EU is very much from uh, regulatory GDPR angle. Uh, in China, of course, it's very tough top-down. Um, but I would argue CSE, uh, their consideration on DD, in terms of a data border issue, which is um, a topic I spent a lot of time on, uh, is actually ahead of the time. Um, what we will see will be very concentrated in China is because China produced quite a lot of large um, tech companies generating data in domestic market, but have the tendency to go to U.S. to list. So, uh, so this looks like a very concentrated in China. But I bet in a few years, uh, data border issue will become a huge problem for every regulator in the world to have to consider. The reason why um, data border issue become an issue is because individuals are not really in the consideration at all. Uh, if a corporate own uh, all the data generated by individual, and then uh, you know the company controlled by shareholders, and then uh, get over get listed in in a different country. Then of course that that begs security questions, but what if you know the the new generation of um, uh, tech companies are actually put individuals in control of the data they they generated, and their data is not stored in any cloud um, but on their phone. So that will make this argument completely different. So I encourage and challenge everyone to look. Um, you know, beyond the share price, beyond the political lens, and uh, uh, have a look at the outcome of what it means to the consumers. Thank you, Brendan. Awesome, that was well said. I'm glad you I'm glad you popped in and added that. And I think it's a great way to end the conversation. I actually just got a notification on my phone that it is my bedtime reminder. So this all worked out well. So Guys, um, thanks so much, Br- Brendan. Just on the question from the speaker about QFIN. I pinged a friend of mine who's a PM in the space. Um, so QFIN 
had an app, they have a lending app that was removed from app stores on July 8th. There's an article I'm going to post on Soho that it's written in Chinese, but was saying that they were they violated the Central Cyberspace Affairs Commission of China said that they violated uh, some privacy data lending rules. Um, and they needed to rectify it in 15 days for the app to go back online. So the stock, I guess, had was weak because of that. But actually, if you look into the company, 87% of the company's loans come from existing clients. And non-app channels contributed to about 35% of its new borrowers in the first quarter. And according to management, the app's likely to be reinstated soon after rectification. I know that was one of the biggest risks. Um, so neither, I have no position. My friend doesn't have any position, but he was familiar with, with the story. He's more constructive long-term, but you know, this lending space is going to be heavily, heavily regulated. So there's always going to be some sort of a headline risk with this type of company, but it does have, you know, relatively high growth rate. Awesome. Thanks for, thanks for that. Um, lending is a business that just, it always scares me. And I, I think I tried to buy, I think I tried to buy green sky and, uh, I think I got slaughtered on that and then Burry ended up buying it. And luckily for Burry, I guess he made some money. So anyways, um, thanks guys for coming on this spaces. This was a long one and um, you guys were able to stick with me through the technical difficulties at the beginning, which I can't thank enough. Um, and of course, super Magatu comes in right at the end when I got to go to bed. So Dan, I know you're listening. Uh, I want to get you on the podcast. Uh, I think we would have a great conversation. Um, and, you know, you're just a great follow, and I know we'd have great discussions. So thanks, everyone, for listening to this Twitter Spaces. Um, I had a blast. And do yourself a favor and follow all of the speakers on here uh, that we had. They are tremendous, tremendous value adds to your uh, timeline. And I think we were able to rummage up a really good group on such a short notice. So, again, I'm trying to do a little bit more of these. If you guys have any, um, you know, uh, topics that you would want me to cover this one was kind of one-off because of you know where we were um anything's fair game for me so feel free to dm me again i'm signing off got to go to bed but thanks again so much to every single one of you guys for listening um uh this this turned out to be way bigger than i thought so thank you all and we'll do this again sometime soon see you